the only evidence of his guilt were his false confessions. There's, there's no other evidence of his guilt. And there's a lot of evidence that indicates that he wasn't even there. In fact, he wasn't there. There are no fingerprints, there are no, there's no blood evidence, there's no DNA that connects him to the crime scene. There are two unidentified males who left blood at the crime scene. We don't know who they are. Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of our podcast, The Yen Soaring Case, A New Verdict. Hello, Ralph. Thanks again for your expert input in today's episode, which focuses entirely on suppressed and new evidence. Hello, Daniela. My pleasure. The terms suppressed or new in relation to evidence does not mean that we're both pulling something out of a hat today that has never been found in any transcript or that has never been debated. That's quite important for our listeners to know. It is more about the fact that there were essential aspects of the investigation and the trial of Yen Suring that, let's put it delicately, have been pushed into the background. There is a theory that some things would not have led to the desired result of obtaining a conviction and were therefore conveniently ignored. Yes, it will be interesting to talk about this. What I would like to point out beforehand, I believe that the background to this whole discussion is simply the adversarial system in the U.S., which differs significantly from German law. And that's why we will be discussing precisely these aspects today. One of many aspects that was not presented to the jury is that investigator Chuck Reed performed luminal testing on the rental car that was used to drive to the crime scene. And even though he was one of the first investigators on the crime scene, Chuck Reed was never called to the stand. They sent me down to do a luminol test on the car for blood in Charlottesville. And I kind of wondered about that, but I didn't say anything. They were supervisors doing it. But to me, they should have had the car towed in and brought into the sheriff's office and let the crime scene technicians go through with a fine tooth comb. But uh, not to say that I didn't do my job, but anyway, they, I went on down and I sprayed the luminol in the front. I didn't spray it all over the car. The way they brought it in, the, the crime scene techs could have went through everything. But anyway, I went down, I sprayed the steering wheel, the accelerator, brake pads, it, it, the front, anything in front that I felt like were hands or footprints would be. Uh, and I got no reaction because the luminol normally will turn to a, I don't know if you've ever seen it work or not. But anyway, uh, it'll come to a glow. But I never saw anything, never got a, any results. And I brought that back and give it to one of the crime scene technicians, and they sent it to the lab. And the lab sent it back with no results. But I, that was never used in court either. And I was never called in to testify to that. Luminol is a chemical compound used in forensic science to detect invisible traces of blood. And when luminol reacts with iron, which is in hemoglobin, a protein present in blood, it glows. This glow allows investigators to find even old and cleaned traces of blood, even the size of a pinhead. So, in practice, a luminol solution is sprayed on an area suspected to contain blood. Based on what I just said, it makes sense, for example, to examine the rental car, even in completely hidden places, for example, on the pedals, which the perpetrator may have forgotten to clean. 
and if there is blood, the affected area will briefly light up blue. And I think it's also very important to mention that other substances can also cause a reaction with luminol. And then again, further testing is necessary to ensure that what was found is really blood. According to Chuck's investigation, there were no traces of blood in the rental car. However, Elizabeth claims that when Jens returned from Washington on the night of the crime, he was wrapped in a bedsheet and covered from head to toe in blood. Also, the luminal picked up bloody footprints coming out of the house, going to the right, going to the driveway. I'm assuming to get into the car. So that's the reason I made sure to, to spray and, and swab down in the crevices of the accelerator and brake pads and all that. But he supposedly cut his hand and had that wrapped in a towel. Well, if that's the case, then you're going to have blood on the steering wheel. Ralph, even if Jens Soering had even the tiniest injuries on the fingers, which is to be expected when people are killed with a knife, then there would have been traces of blood in the car. Yes, of course. DNA expert Thomas McClintock told me something else that I also found interesting. He did an experiment with his students because the luminal issue surrounding this case is so immensely important. He obtained an identical car from the 1980s and examined it together with his students using luminal. They put tiny splashes of blood on the floor mats, seats, and carpets, making sure it was really minimal. And they tried to clean it with Coca-Cola because, according to Elizabeth, the car had been cleaned with Coca-Cola on the night of the crime. So we put blood on the carpet, then we look for that blood stain with luminol. We tried all different sorts of carpets, but then one of the students said that maybe a car's carpet is different than one in your house, and that's what led us to buy the carpet for a car. Um, but we tried um, different times of length of time that the blood was on the carpet, uh, different lengths of time to clean it, scrub it, just rinse it, and it really doesn't get rid of it. You can still hit it with luminol and it'll still glow. What we did see, in fact, was not in line with what Elizabeth was saying. So that was a very interesting project as well. Yes, and all of that is comprehensible and conclusive. The question, why was this not introduced and clarified accordingly during the trial? That is related to the fact that in the adversarial system, there are different objectives. On the one hand, that of the prosecutor, to convict Jens Soaring, meaning that he does not have the obligation to exonerate him, and on the other hand, that of the defense counsel, who was supposed to exonerate the defendant, but apparently, for whatever reason, was not sufficiently aware of this evidence to introduce it during the trial. A key point is certainly that Chuck Reed, the second investigator next to Ricky Gardner, should have been called to the stand to testify because he was the one who did the luminol testing. And then, of course, the jury would have heard about luminol. Trial observer Tammy Martin is also firmly convinced that if Chuck had testified in court, it would have been an absolute game-changer in the trial. Jens would not have been convicted at all had Chuck testified. The only reason, and we know this from the affidavit, from the juror, the only reason Jens was convicted of double murder 
of the Hastings was because of a sock print that is now considered junk science. Perhaps at this point, we should also mention the fundamental difference between criminal trials in the U.S. and Germany. In our legal system, the court is obliged to clarify the facts of the case. That means establishing all the facts in order to have a chronological sequence in which the findings ultimately reflect the crime. Regarding the defendant, this means that all the circumstances that speak against him, but also those that exonerate him, must be determined. And in this respect, it would be completely impossible, for example, not to cross-examine Chuck Reed, who was the first homicide investigator on the scene, about his impressions, about his point of view, and about his approach. And that applies just as much to the rental car and to the investigation, and I think that's really the crucial thing. And that is also the advantage of the German legal system, if I may say so at this point, because it simply produces higher quality results than what we are currently seeing or hearing here. So does this omission qualify as a procedural error? Not in the U.S., because the prosecutor will introduce only the evidence that will help him to give the jury the impression of the defendant's guilt. But he is not required to introduce exculpatory evidence. As I understand it, that's the defense attorney's job. He certainly could have called Chuck Reed not only as a witness about what he saw at the crime scene, but ultimately about all these luminol-related issues. He could have heard an expert witness who knows about luminol, who could have confirmed the accuracy and the precision of this forensic method. All of that could have been done to expose Elizabeth's testimony in its entirety as not credible, as full of holes, as unconvincing. This might ultimately have led to a different outcome. We said at the beginning of this episode that it was about suppressed or new evidence in quotation marks. Now, of course, the role of Jens Soring's defense attorney is not evidence and nothing suppressed or new, but it is an essential element. His entire behavior, including the mistakes he made in his defense of Jens Soering. It is always difficult to talk about mistakes when it comes to competence and experience. People are not machines, and every defense counsel is only as good as he or she is. In Germany, too, we have an extreme range in quality, and it's the same in the U.S. ultimately. It's the defendant's choice to hire that attorney so he has to live with it, even if the person made mistakes. It's not that this mistake was made intentionally. I don't want to insinuate that, but that perhaps the lack of experience in criminal trials, the lack of routines, personal life situations, whatever, may have played a role but it's not relevant to the proceedings where one would have to say that this is a procedural error. It seems rather tragic to outside observers because there were also many mistakes, for example, in the choice of wording in motions. That is to say, Virginia has a very special terminology in criminal proceedings, and Richard Neaton made many mistakes in that regard, so that he was not allowed to present things because of his wording. In retrospect, that was very unfortunate, I mean, basically, Ricky would probably tell you, uh, we worked this case mentally 24 hours a day. I used to wake up at night, my wife will tell you, I'd wake up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and get up and go sit down thinking, you know, 
Could it have happened this way? What did we not do? Do we need to do this? And I think Ricky probably did the same thing. Uh, we, we worked our butt off on that case. Want to learn more about Jens Söring and the Hazel murders? Chuck Reed, the leading investigator at the time, has compiled exclusive material for you and commented on it. Previously unpublished evidence, excerpts from trial files in Söring's diary, as well as explosive lab results. Get his report at www.suring-case.com. You can also find the link in the show notes. You just touched on another thing I'd like to ask you. Can it really be that you only hear one of the two investigators at the trial? Both worked hand in hand and as equal partners on the case for six months. No, you can't understand that because you need all impressions and observations to clarify the facts. It must also be pointed out once again that it is not important here whether Chuck Reed says, I think he is innocent, or Ricky Gardner says, I think he is guilty. Witnesses are not allowed to say this, and it wouldn't be admissible. It doesn't matter. That's not testimony. That's opinion. What's relevant is, what did you see? What did you perceive? What were the first steps? What did you think at that moment? And here, of course, the two-person rule is extremely important because for these two investigators, too, this was an exceptional situation. When they were at the crime scene, when they saw this, they certainly did not have a resting pulse of 70. And they must have been extremely agitated and tense, not to say perhaps even overwhelmed by the situation because at that early stage of their career, they lacked sufficient experience and routine. So it's completely incomprehensible why Chuck Reed was not called to testify. Yes, he also showed me the subpoena. He still has those documents. He was subpoenaed, I think, on 11 days of the trial, and he was actually sitting outside the courtroom. There were other issues beyond the luminal testing, and Chuck's testimony that are very important in this whole trial, for example, the FBI suspect profile that was allegedly prepared. Gardner denies there was one. Chuck Reed also showed me the documents that clearly show that there was a profile, but not the profile itself, because that is missing. The suspect profile was prepared by FBI agent Ed Solzbach, and it said that the perpetrator must have been a woman and someone close to the victim's family. Let's hear Chuck Reed on this. Uh, Mr. Solzbach is known all over the country as a profiler. He was back then. Um, and he... It comes, it comes out, he pretty much figured and, and determined it was the daughter because it was somebody that knew the victims uh, and was acquainted to them and knew them well. Otherwise, Miss Hayson wouldn't have been dressed in a gown the way she was. And his conclusion was it was Elizabeth. But uh, that's not to say that's fact. I mean, but that that's, was just part of the investigation that, that Ricky says didn't happen. Uh, FBI profile is not concrete. It's just evidence that, that can be presented in a trial. But it's still exculpatory evidence, which is evidence, as you well know, that needs to be passed on to the defendants and the defendant's attorney. Well, no, this wasn't passed. This wasn't passed on. No one was aware of it as far as I know of and for, from what Jens was saying. We got a call on the murder on a Wednesday. Carl Wells, Friday, that same week, called the FBI. To, to come into a profile. So, but then you get over the years where Ricky has 
pretty much told people or, con or tried to convince people that he was the lead investigator, I would think surely he knew. He should know, as a lead investigator, everything that went on, if you could remember it. Ralph, is the FBI profile exculpatory evidence? I wouldn't go so far as to call it exculpatory evidence, but I would definitely say that it would have been more than unprofessional if such a profile had not been prepared. Both in the U.S. and Germany, it is common practice for experts to draw up a suspect profile in order to provide the investigators with clues that help them determine which direction the investigation should take. They send in people with special training to look at the crime scene, the bodies, the surrounding circumstances, what was eaten, what was drunk, what the bedroom looked like, all kinds of things and try to combine and analyze their findings to get an idea of what actually happened there and who it could point to. That's why we can say that this suspect profile most likely did exist and would ultimately have become the basis for the investigation. Now, the fact that the profiler had the impression that it must be someone close to the family and possibly also a woman does not constitute exculpatory evidence. The profiler's assessment and conclusions do not preclude that, ultimately, the perpetrator could have been a man or someone else entirely. Stanley Lepecas has this to say. Getting back to the, the, the profile thing, the significance of that is, is that there was a conscious effort, and it would be by the prosecutor, he would make the final decision as to going forward, what they're going to use, what they're not going to use, and so forth. There was a conscious decision not to acknowledge that a profile was done. They're fairly, in my opinion, fairly accurate when they come up with something. It's not something that's ridiculous. It's usually pretty well grounded. But anyway, for whatever reason, they, they wanted to deny the existence that any type of profile was done. That was something that, that they had to dismiss immediately because it was, it was a major problem for the case to, to, to have uh, admit that there was a profile done and it, it didn't match up with the way they wanted to prosecute the case. So they, they, they had a, and, and I'm certain they didn't want an FBI agent coming in there to testify that what he, what his opinion was. So there was a conscious decision to eliminate that from ever happening if they could. What do you think? Ultimately, it's not about the idea that the FBI profile should be viewed as a spectacle or something special. Instead, they're complaining about the investigators and pointing out that it's strange if you try to sweep this profile under the rug or deny the fact that it even existed. Yes, I can't comprehend that because I don't attach that much importance to it. It's nothing more than consulting experts. Not folks like Chuck Reed or Ricky Gardner who deal with a crime scene for the first time, but an expert who can fall back on his experience, routines and comparative material at his disposal, and is therefore in a position to make the investigation more efficient. He can speed it up, 
so that investigators find the perpetrator more quickly. One thing I do understand, though, is if the investigators subsequently did not follow the profile specifications or suggestions, but deviated from them or ignored them, then they might say afterward that they don't want to introduce these findings into the trial in any way. That may have been the case, but that is also pure speculation. I assume, and I'm convinced, that this profile existed because that's simply the way things are done in the context of a capital murder investigation. And to that extent, I believe that Ricky Gardner, for whatever reason, is not telling the truth. Elizabeth testifies that Yin shows up that evening covered in blood, as we mentioned, from head to toe with a sheet, and yet the car is luminol, there's not a speck of blood, but the jury never hears that the car is luminol because Chuck Reed's called and thinks he's going to testify, but yet he's never called to testify, and the inept defense counsel never brings that to, that to the jury. So if I was on that jury, based on the way the case was represented, I would probably have convicted Soren. But knowing what the evidence truly is today, at least that which we've been able to see, it's no way in hell you're even close to beyond a reasonable doubt, and that's the standard in America. But as Stan said, it's easier to get in than it is to get out because you get in on beyond a reasonable doubt, and then we can come back and prove there's plenty of doubt, and our system in Virginia to get a pardon is you pretty much got to prove who did it. If, if you've been convicted, then prove to us who did it, and if you can't, we're not going to give you a pardon. Chip Harding also talks about procedural standards. What's the difference between German and American law when it comes to the introduction of expert opinions in court, for example? I don't think the FBI profile could have been used as evidence either. It is also not an expert opinion in that sense. As I said, it is nothing more than an evaluation of the crime scene, with the purpose of allowing conclusions about a possible perpetrator and providing clues as to what should be the primary focus of the investigation so as not to be misled. As far as their introduction in court goes, private expert opinions are introduced quite normally, like any other evidence, through the defense and through the prosecution. But there are also judicial expert opinions. They're commissioned by the court. I would like to talk to you about one more substantial murder motive. It was difficult to believe that she had been abused, sexually abused by her, her mother. Um, things that come out in the trial, you know, nude pictures being taken in the garden, sleeping with the mom. People around here just were taken aback by those, those comments and those accusations. A major motive for Elizabeth Haysom could have been sexual abuse by her mother. But it's also obvious from the transcripts and records of the trial how this important aspect was almost left out. Feel free to correct me if you feel otherwise. She was asked about it during her trial when she testified. My impression is that the prosecutor led her to the statement that in the end, there was no sexual abuse on the part of the mother. But one may assume that it was also shown by the photographs found at the crime scene, the nude pictures, that there was certainly a special relationship between mother and daughter which raises the question why this led to a double murder. So, if there had been a bonding or relationship problem as a hard motive in connection with the sexual abuse of the mother, the question is why the father became a victim as well, 
and not primarily the mother, and why the crime might not have been committed in a different setting than in the way it is presented here, namely in a conflict on site. But this is all speculation. To fantasize in letters about the possible demise of the parents is one thing, but to carry out this act with the help of others is of course an entirely different matter. Yes, but considering how the crime went down, I believe it wasn't planned over a long period. If the perpetrator had planned it, they would have factored in the following consideration. How can I do this with the least amount of effort and the least amount of damage so that there will be little evidence at the scene through which I could be traced? And they would have asked themselves, should I really do this at their house or rather somewhere else? They might have considered using a gun, which is not too hard to obtain in the U.S., or are there entirely different ways of pulling this off? There is a wide range of options, but what happened at that place was slaughter and overkill. As far as I'm concerned, this rules out a planned crime. So you're saying the overkill was an emotional act? At some point, there was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, triggering this kind of reaction. Elizabeth committed perjury and lied about the abuse. As recently as 2016, she confirmed in a newspaper interview that she was abused by her own mother for eight years. And in a previous episode, you pointed out that with such a serious crime, it's crucial also to investigate the environment and all the other circumstances surrounding the suspect. And at that time, in Strictly Christian Bedford, it was an absolute taboo to talk about these things just as these salacious letters between Jens and Elizabeth had a really disturbing effect on some, this whole permissiveness and talking about sexuality so openly. So we went upstairs in the bedrooms and started going through some letters, and that's when we started finding these things to where Elizabeth was talking about how much she hated her parents. Uh, and we found some pictures of her in the nude. She was kneeling beside the bed with a Shakespeare book on the bed like she was reading it or praying over to something, I don't know, but she was on her knees and she was totally nude. I mean, it was, it was very obvious. We, knew, we found out that Miss Hasten was into art. Ralph, about those pictures that were found, artistic photographs of Elizabeth kneeling in front of the bed. Shakespeare lies in front of her on the bed and she kneels as a naked teenager. There is talk about her bathing together with her mother as a teenager and about artist meetings in the neighborhood where they celebrated sort of a nude cult involving daughters. There should have been expert testimony about that. At least that is how it would be done in Germany. From experience, of course, you can say that what you found at the scene and her later statement that she had been abused by her mother for years probably corresponded to the truth. Of course, this has an extreme effect on the development of young people, also on their sexual behavior and on their ability to bond. But to what extent that is something only youth psychiatrists or other psychiatric experts can assess? That is difficult, and it's certainly not up to the judge to do so. Would you consider this to be an essential motive for murder? It can be, but not necessarily. There are certainly cases where some sort of still existing mutual love plays a role like a love-hate relationship. It is difficult to judge what the consequences might be, 
But of course, it can be a motive for murder. That would also justify the brutality towards the mother. But I would always ask the question, what about the father? Why the double murder? Diane also talked about this. She didn't get any details straight from Elizabeth, but also had a mutual friend in prison, for example, who mentioned that Elizabeth was seen with some kind of sexual abuse support group. In retrospect, that's interesting. Now, of course, there's also the confession or this corrected statement in the newspaper. That, of course, also underpins that there were long-term consequences. Interestingly enough, Diane also told me that she also felt that Elizabeth had lied about the father's role in her life. Upon seeing the pictures of the crime scene and the dead Mr. Hasem after her release from prison, Diane had the feeling that Elizabeth had not correctly portrayed the true relationship to her father, or even the dislike for her father, that she lied about that aspect. What can I say? The problem remains that the crime occurred the way it did in terms of time, space, and character, that basically everything erupted in one instant. Like I said, I think that her childhood experiences, which probably included constant recriminations, contributed over time to her negative feelings toward her parents. But it's very hard to jump to valid conclusions without expert input. Or even without listening to Elizabeth's side of the story, one thing you hear a lot is that she also experienced extreme pressure to perform, and that is also quite essential, I think. Definitely. But we don't have the opportunity to hear it from her own mouth, which is somewhat understandable. Christine Kim, Elizabeth's former roommate, is another matter. She too plays an essential part, although an obscure one. She did not testify at the trial, but a letter from her was read and Jens Suring reported that there had been a romantic affair between Elizabeth and Christine Kim. So they were definitely close, and it became clear during Elizabeth's 1987 trial that Christine Kim was let in on the murders after they occurred. She also produced a timeline of the murder weekend, covering the events up to the discovery of the Hastens. This is what Chip Harding has to say about that. Miss Kim has never been put under oath where you can really hold her accountable from a legal standpoint of what she has to say. When the whole thing was over, there was a statement made by the prosecutor that he was very impressed with Elizabeth to the point he even allowed her to put the case together for him. So the case was filmed, you know, as it went on, you could see, I saw this where he's asking Elizabeth to look at the alibi that was written. And they stipulate and allow her to do it to say that's Christine Kim's handwriting and that she says that Yen's and I dictated that to her. And Yen's going, that that's another one of her many, many lies. I have never, I've never seen a case where you don't call in, if that's Kim's handwriting and she, if they're accurate on that, that they wouldn't have put her on the stand, put her on the oath and, and ask him those questions. Isn't it strange that one would share perpetrator knowledge with their third person, or that someone not involved in the crime prepares such a list? Granted, that is odd, but it's above all incomprehensible that this witness didn't testify at the trial, because this would have been very important, of course. Her testimony could have provided important insights. 
In Germany, it would be unthinkable not to question that witness immediately, unless, of course, there is no way to get a hold of her. Like, if we don't know where she is at the moment, for example, abroad or wherever. But if she was available, they would have questioned her during such a criminal trial for at least 60 or 70 minutes. She can still be found on social media today and threatens to call her lawyer if you contact her. She said she can't remember who was there when she prepared this timeline. Elizabeth says there were three of them. Jen says he wasn't there. It was just Christine Kim and Elizabeth Hayson. And Christine Kim can't remember. That doesn't sound very convincing. There are always events that stay in your mind. And this is an extraordinary event. And claiming you can't remember at that point must be construed as a lie to cover yourself, in which case the interrogator must use the options at his disposal to elicit the truth, such as the threat of a perjury charge, which under German law carries a penalty, either a fine or imprisonment. Is that one of those situations where the persons come even more into focus because the statement or behavior seems suspicious or strange? Yes, she knows more than she is willing to admit. And at this point, the main question is, who does she know it from? You can assume she knows exactly what happened. So she either knows that Jens did or didn't do it, or that Elizabeth did or didn't do it. In any case, she knows more than everyone else up to this day, with the exception of Jens and Elizabeth. She is closest to the truth. That reminds me of something we already touched upon. We were talking about credibility, and in this whole trial, the credibility issue takes center stage. And there are many who question Elizabeth Hasem's credibility. We already discussed this in the episode on the state witness. Even Elizabeth's own siblings testified against her during the trial. Bill Sizemore has more on that. Howard Hasem, Elizabeth's half-brother, in her sentencing hearing in 1987, said, I think that she has lied to me in the past and, frankly, continues to lie. I personally am not satisfied with the explanation that her guilty plea provided. I think Elizabeth was in the house at the time of the crime, and I have reasons for that. And I will go into those reasons, if you like. But the prosecutor cut him off at that point and said, no, sir. You've answered my question. Thank you very much. What do you say about that? Why didn't they listen more carefully to Howard Hasem at this crucial point? Yes, because under certain circumstances, that would have destroyed the prosecutor's strategy, called his goal into question, and led to problems. And if you always stick to the premise that, ultimately, it's only a matter of finding and inquiring about the facts that lead to a guilty verdict— that's understandable in the situation, but it would be impossible in Germany. That would not happen because we are always obliged to investigate exonerating circumstances. And if Elizabeth's brother can prove with facts and help to establish that Elizabeth must have been in her parents' house at the time of the crime, then of course you want to know and inquire about that. There is, of course, much more to say. For example, the statement of Sylvia Moore the employee of the car rental company, who describes the car as absolutely clean, 
spotless, even though each car almost always needs some cleaning. But this one car, of all cars, seemed extremely clean. Or the hair in the sink, which does not belong to the Haysoms or Yen Suring. This list of items that raise questions is very long. The neighbour who claims to have seen a lot of cars on the driveway at the Haysom's house and found a knife on the road in front of the house. Which is actually not that unusual around Bedford, considering how many hunters visit the area. Those are all questions that should have been clarified. Not everything you just mentioned must necessarily be true. For example, that witness, the neighbour, who claims to have seen cars in front of the house. Sometimes these are simply impressions that do not match reality. It's not a lie, but perhaps something you just say because you think you must contribute something to solving such a horrible crime. Then you just tell something that you think was the case, but it wasn't. Maybe there was only one car, suddenly it's four or five. But, for example, the testimony about the car about its cleanliness, that could certainly have been clarified because this employee who had the task of cleaning the car is neutral and has no connection to the crime. There would have had to be much more investigation, and of course that would have had to be introduced into the trial. Ralph, can you tell us about synaptic investigative work in Germany? That sounds like such a leap, but I think it's extremely important for comparative purposes simply because we have now talked a lot about how the investigators proceeded here, which points were weighted, and how, also in the trial. And I find these differences between America and Germany extremely important. Okay, in the course of the trial, but especially when the chamber retires for deliberations, one has compared all the facts that speak for or against the defendant then you have to see whether you can fully convince the judge that the defendant did or did not commit the crime. And everything that we have discussed today, including the doubts, those would be placed on the side that speaks in favor of the defendant. After all, it is not about proving innocence, but about proving guilt. All the doubt factors then come down on the side of acquittal and all the others come down on the side of conviction. And ultimately, it's about looking at everything afterwards and saying, okay, we're convinced he did it, or we have so much doubt that we acquit the defendant. The journalist Sandy Hausman has covered the trial for many years and has also received awards for her reports on the case. And she has also looked at all the evidence and these factors that we have discussed here today. This is what she has to say. I mean, I think there was certainly um, evidence hard evidence late in the case that pointed to others' involvement with the murders and that exonerated Jens. I don't think that he, you know, the fact that he tried to stir up public sentiment was really what clinched it for him in the end. I think what was important was that there was increasing doubt about his guilt and it had a lot to do with the forensics of the case. I think it's important for people to know that wrongful conviction happens. When we know that, perhaps we um, want to make some changes to our system of justice uh, just to make sure that people are fairly tried. Um, there is talk about giving cases a second look. They call it the second look bill. It was considered in the last legislative session. I'm sure it will come up again. This was the sixth episode of our podcast, The Case Against Jens Suring, A New Verdict. 
we discuss the evidence and aspects in the Soaring case that were never presented in the trial or did not receive any attention in the proceedings. In the next episode, we will talk about wounds on perpetrators or suspects. How meaningful are you? What role do witnesses play? Subscribe to the podcast and never miss a thing. Thanks for listening. You're Daniela Hillers.